Everybody, we're back. It's 2019. Welcome back to Saltier Politics 2019 edition. Um, Emily, how, how were the holidays? The holidays were, I was warm. I was in Florida. I did not, I really stayed away from Twitter and had kind of a break from that, which was really nice. I caught up on a ton of Bravo and E! News. And what I found out is that they don't have commercials at the same time. So I could go back and forth. It was it was a nice brain break. So I too was in Florida. Um, we were in different places. I was in um, Naples, and then I drove from Naples to Vero Beach, and then I had to go back to Miami, which was freezing, by the way, um, when I went back. But yeah, I spent. I feel like I got my Florida quota. In. And now we're ready for the year. I'm ready for all the political mess that's already happening and already saltier than ever about it. I'm. <laughs> I've got a lot of salt stored up. Um, this show is so amazing. We have Marty Gold Cummings. He is a drag queen and he's a political activist. And this guy just took down a major democratic organization in Hell's Kitchen in New York City, um, took it over a couple of years ago and just got a bunch of people elected district leaders and um, has a really, I thought, a really inspirational story in the conversation that we had with him. Um, I thought it was incredibly inspirational, um, regardless of your political affiliation. I just think it's something... Um, that everybody should listen to. And I, I was incredibly impressed with him. You know, it was interesting. I actually, I met him on election night this year during the midterms at a, a voter watch party. And I was reporting and a lot of people didn't want to talk to me because I was Fox. And I get that. But Marty, and I think we'll hear in the podcast about just his background and really the empathy for different kinds of people wants to educate people and wants to people to learn about people who are different from them and that's how we met and kind of kept up a conversation on Twitter and now he's here and I'm if you want inspiration for 2019 this is the interview to listen to I gotta say I'm so happy we kicked the year off with him because he was amazing hi everybody welcome to 2019 and our first episode of saltier politics um I'm so excited Emily because in studio today we have Marty Gold Cummings, who is a very prominent drag queen slash political activist who not only is a political activist, but kind of took on the man and the machine um, in New York City, which for those of you who are not from New York um, would know is not an easy thing to do, and won. Um, and really, you got involved, Marty, because of the election. You were kind of horrified by what happened in 2016, and that got you involved. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I as a drag uh, performer... It's always kind of just instinctually known that drag is like a form of political activism in itself, specifically because um, drag queens and, and uh, transgender people kind of led the Stonewall um, riots in 1969. Mm-hmm. So that I, I think it should just be like inherently known that like drag is always political. Um, but for me, you know, I was like a shock jock kind of comic. You know, I made a lot of for so I mean, I've been doing drag professionally for almost a decade. So for most of my career, I made like. Joan Rivers, Lisa Lampanelli, Sarah Silverman kind of jokes that now looking back, I'm like, ooh, that's, I don't, like, you know, that's not my style anymore. You know, but like, so that's like where my career was. And then, and then the, the primary started for the presidential election and it got, and it became this, this um, kind of election we've never, you know, politics is always kind of dirty, which I don't really think is right I don't like believe in in that um but um <laughs> you're in the wrong town and yeah. be involved in politics for yeah that. I mean trust me we, right. we'll talk all about that right. but um but you know so it, 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 it kind of became something else when when Donald Trump came down his escalator and, and announced his bid for presidency 
Um, I don't mind like a celebrity running for office. Like Ronald Reagan was an actor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jesse Ventura. I don't mind that. But what I mind is openly racist uh, rhetoric, you know, as a way to electrify people. And the first thing he ever said was that Mexicans are, are rapist. And that kind of set this, you know, um, kind of new, my brain kind of rewired in that moment. And, and it kind of rewired in how I presented myself on stage. I was like, okay, so me as a comedian making jokes now takes on a different meaning because we have a presidential contender actually saying like horrible things, you know, and, and, and so I started researching like what are, what, what, how can I get involved to, uh, politically, you know, to make sure a Democrat wins mm -hmm. at the time it was the primary season. So I was, you know, was figuring out who I wanted to vote for and who was your person. Uh, I was very torn between, uh, Bernie and Hillary. There's so much about Hillary that I, love and there's so much about Bernie I love but in the end I, I went with with Hillary. Hillary's like the most qualified person we've ever had run for a president and I think um, institutionalized sexism kind of like really worked against her and uh, things that men do they can get away with but Hillary would do and it's like oh my gosh this woman this monster. You yeah know? I mean we had, so, a, we had a guy saying he would grab women by certain body parts and that apparently got him to the White House and Hillary Meanwhile, I yeah. know, was taking the blame for her husband's extramarital affairs, which I, yeah. which I still don't get, by the way. I, this is kind of like very, very off topic, but I am such a Monica Lewinsky fan. Like I met her <laughs> at an event and she's like the coolest, nicest person. And I think she really, and so that's like kind of like a conflict of mine also as a Hillary supporter. I'm like, was that handled in the best way? Uh, I just think Monica's done a great thing with her, her TED talk and her speaking out about cyberbullying because I think cyber, you have a president who is a cyber bullier. Uh, Despite his wife's best efforts yeah. to have the don't cyberbully, you know, be best, right? Um, be best campaign. But uh, yes, yeah, so, you know, I, I was looking for a political organization to get involved with, and the one in my neighborhood was kind of they they said they were Democrats, but they didn't really do very many Democrat-like things, and they weren't very active unless you were like in this kind of old boys club, and they've been around for 125 years, the same family running it, and and I and I called my city council member at the time. Uh, and he's a friend of mine, and he was like, well, why don't you start something? And, and so it just kind of went from there and, and, and became now my whole life. <laughs> Is that what you're doing now? What are, you, what are you doing? I mean, the election's over, so are you still keeping it going? Yeah, well, I always tell my audiences, I'm like, the election may be over, but the revolution's just begun. You know? <laughs> I love that. I, that's a great line. <laughs> uh, you know, because it's, we're never done fighting, you know? It's like uh, people, there's always going to be groups of people that are, that are attacked, and right now it seems that every group of people is being attacked, and... And um, so I, I was president of the House Kitchen Democrats for two years, and I just had my last meeting as president last week, uh, because a year ago, I, I lived in House Kitchen for about seven, six or seven years, six years, something like that, six or seven years. And that's the neighborhood that, that the House Kitchen Democrats was formed right. in, obviously. Um, where we elected district leaders to get rid of the McManus Club, which was in power for. And sorry, years. just for people who are not from New York and they don't know, Hell's Kitchen is the area in Midtown um, that's west of Times Square. So um, it's part of the theater districts in Hell's Kitchen, mm -hmm. and it's it's um, a really vibrant, incredible. It's, you know, it's had a great, wild history, right. you know, and it's a beautiful, vibrant neighborhood uh, that's continuing to go through a lot of changes. Like a year ago, so like a year ago, you know, my husband and I we were living in a studio, and we have two dogs, and we want to. Ex and our family and you know so we moved we ended up moving to Hamilton Heights which I love and so um we worked it out with the club that I I will remain on as a because our club is a you can be a member of our club whether you live 
and or work in the neighborhood. And I work in the neighborhood. So um, I said I would run for one more term, get us through the midterms. Then I decided, uh, you know, I can stay on the executive board as a voting member of the board. But I I felt, you know, pass the torch, give somebody else an opportunity and uh, to lead the club. So you're talking about passing the torch, but the guy who... um whose organization, the McManus organization, that he never beat. did. <laughs> well, he did. He was going to pass the torch to his nephew, right? He was around for 50 years. Yeah. Um, and this quote is so priceless because I work in politics and I've worked with guys like this and this is your typical entrenched um, ward politician, for lack of a better description. <laughs> so this quote is that basically district leaders can't help people the way we used to help them, admits <laughs> McManus. Um <laughs> I'll skip. I'll skip all the other stuff. But you can't help anybody anymore. You can't even take care of a jury notice. And I, I, Emily and I were talking about that before you came here, and I started cracking up because that's what it shows to really be out of touch. Like, yeah, you can't take care of a jury notice. It's not legal. Yeah, it's, it's not like, legal. It's like Tammany and Hall's over. You can't do well, that he, anymore. This is the last remaining Tammany Hall right club. Although they beat Tammany Hall, Hall 150 years ago yeah. to become the McManus organization. Yeah. Well, you know they and to say that district leaders don't do anything. You know, for those who don't know what a district leader is, it's a volunteer, non-paid elected party position. But they do. Our district leaders that beat them uh, have have work to get the actors unions and musicians unions involved as being poll workers so they can have um, you know, some sort of income if they're out of work during election cycles. Uh, my, my council member uptown, Mark Levine is working to get ferry service on the West side. And so the district leaders in Hell's Kitchen are working with him to ensure there's a peer available. You know, so there's like, there's so much that they do, uh, and they don't get paid to do it. I love though, is your journey because I was reading when becoming a drag queen too, it wasn't, it wasn't your plan. You kind of went into it, but you kind (laughs) of, what's amazing with you though, is you kind of don't have a plan. You don't, you didn't plan to be it. You kind of pivoted and then adapted, which you did with politics too. And then they changed. I think it's important. I I always tell young people, you know, the the great thing about being a, a drag queen and now a drag queen with a political platform is a lot of young people uh, come to see me and a lot of young people follow me on social media social media is like such a it can be used as a very negative awful place or it can be used really positively and I try to use it positively and I didn't know any of this so how are these young people who follow me going to know anything about right. this you know county committee and district they don't know what that is so it's my job to educate them on on that but you know I, th- I always tell young young kids you know who are like oh well, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this and by this age I'm going to do this and by this age I'm going to do that you know everybody like tries to lay out the roadmap of their life and I'm like that's great have an outline of what you want but don't like draw the whole map because the universe is going to like present something to you that you couldn't even envision I moved to New York City uh two weeks after I graduated high school I was 17 at the time and you know I we're grew, from uh, Maryland. My okay. family been on the same farm since 1782. Wow! And so moving to New- my aunt had lived in Terrytown. She was like the only other one who like got away. And uh, I love where I'm from now. You know, growing up there, I was really resentful towards it. But now I have a fond um, admiration for the history uh, of it. You know, the it's like true American. And uh, you know, so I moved to New York and I wanted to be a musical theater actor. That was like what I I I wanted to do. I said I want to be on Broadway. That's my dream. I'm gonna you know. And then I. You know, now there's all these great shows that, that are very queer friendly, but you know, I remember being in school and my teacher was like, oh, there's no roles for you. You're going to be, you're just going to end up a drag queen or something. There's nothing out there for you because almost 14 years ago, there wasn't a lot of queer stuff on Broadway. And, and I really was offended by that. And I was really upset. I was like, no, I'm an actor. I'm an actor. I'm an actor. I can do this. I can do this. 
Uh, and I got, and I and I did some work, and and then I did this off Broadway show that I play that was like an androgynous gender. I guess now it would be known as like a non-binary, non-gender conforming uh, character, and I really just loved playing dress up with that. It made me feel like nostalgic for the freedom of being in like kindergarten playing dress up, you know. And I was like, oh, this is so fun. Like I can experiment with this. And then I it just kind of the universe just opened that door for me, and I ended up being a drag queen uh, and then and then I, I realized you know I, I, I started like going to nightclubs like dressed up and telling jokes and I realized that I am like good on them and I it was like a I don't know how to explain it without sounding like cliche and like dumb but it, it was like one of those moments where like I you know like in Mrs. Maisel do you watch Mrs. Maisel? Oh yes every uh, single episode is, have you seen Mrs. Maisel? I've tried to get into it and everybody tells me I have to and um, I can't get into it I love it so much but it's that moment where like you just I, I remember I just went on stage one night and I grabbed the microphone and I just started talking about my life and everybody laughed. And I was like, oh, I have a, I, and this isn't like a, I'm bragging, you know, but it's like, I, I feel like I, I, whatever, I don't know what I believe in God, but whatever God is, I think blessed me with the, 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 the talent of like being able to just like tell stories and, and like. It clicked for you. Yeah. And it clicked and it became my career and it's like been my full-time sole income for almost a decade, you know, and, and then drag led me into politics and because of the platform drag gave me, I'm now able to have a platform in politics because I'm visible and seen and, and sure the headline is drag queen did this in politics, drag queen did that. But if it's getting people to click it and get educated, then I'll use that, you know? Do you feel like, um, do you feel when you're talking and you're up on stage, do you think about it beforehand or do you just, just start to riff? Now I do more right. because you know, uh, they're like I said, you know, like Sarah Silverman, I, I reference this a lot because Sarah Silverman recently came out saying she's not going to make jokes about gay people anymore because she like now looking back as, Oh, you know, that's not really productive and it's offensive. And I look back at jokes I made and I, and I think, Oh, that's, racially offensive or sexist or this. And at the time it was like, I really, really loved Joan Rivers and Lisa Lampanelli and, and then later Amy Schumer and that style of humor and, and Howard Stern and stuff. And, 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 and now I, I look and I think, oh, that's not like where we're at as a society anymore. And that's not where I'm at as like an individual or person. So now when I'm on stage, I, I, I think more about what I'm saying because I don't want to, um, offend somebody or I just don't want to, I, I, I think you can be smarter about humor than like digging into somebody. And so that's what I, so I try to think. It's interesting that you say that now. though, because I read an interview not too long ago with a comedian who was arguing the opposite, that it's your job to make people uncomfortable, that it's comedians who can yeah. get away with it because under the guise of humor. Um, and I think it was in the context of, of, um, sort of, I don't know, somebody's maybe even telling Bill Cosby jokes that in retrospect are not so funny, but, um, yeah. but they were basically saying that, no, it's our job as comedians to make the audience uncomfortable and not, and, and I wonder, and you're sounding more like it may be your job as a comedian, but it's not something that you as a human being. Exactly. I, I, can, I can see that argument because like, so it, for example, if I'm going to like make a joke about a certain group of people and if I'm only making that joke then I think that's awful. If you kind of do what Joan Rivers did and you kind of blanket and make fun of everybody, like Bianca Del Rio, famous drag comedian, uh, I think it's okay. But I think it's also important to be like aware of what you're saying, you know, for, uh, I think it's important to be aware of what you're saying and know that it has impact. Um, 
yeah, words like matter. And so I, I try, I think it's okay to like be offensive and push the boundary, but don't, um, but be, I don't know how to word it, but like be smart about it, you know, like don't be offensive just for the sake of being offensive. If you're going to make like a racial joke, do it as a way to make fun of the people who are actually racist. You're not making fun of that. Like you can make the, the stereotype joke, but you're not actually making fun of that demographic of people. You're making fun of the people who are actually like shitheads. You do know? you feel like... In Does the, that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Do you feel like um, now that you're in politics, you have to be more careful about what you say because it's going to reflect not just on you, but on your organization? I know a lot of politicians sure. feel that way. Well, I look at it... Okay, so yeah. I, and I've had this brought up a lot. Like people are like, oh my gosh, what skeletons you have in your closet? You've said all this and you've there's video of this and you tweeted this and you did that and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, all right, let's like break it down. Like politicians are human beings and human beings make mistakes and say things that as 21 year old Marty is going to make jokes and say things on social media that 31 year old Marty isn't going to say or do because you evolve as a human being. And I think you have to give people that understanding that human beings can change and do evolve. And so like, I think it's like, I love Alexandra uh, Ocasio, uh, I think she's great. I think she's a, a, a new age of politician. Um, we were DMing last night because she was like putting on uh, nails and I was like giving her advice on what nails do you know. But I just think she's so open and real and I love her. And I think, um, I think people, I think that as a politician, I don't really worry about my past because I own everything I've ever done. Uh, every mistake I've ever made. And as a politician, like I met my husband on Grindr. There's probably dick pics of me out there. There's, people actually meet people in Grinder. Yeah, but and we did. We didn't even have sex for like a month. We he like wanted to go on a date, so we did. It was wild. Uh, it was crazy. But you know, like I'm a, I'm 31, a 31 year old uh, queer person in New York City. So I've, you know, I've done things that most politicians probably have done and will deny. Right. And I think that's important. So I, uh, yeah, to answer your question, like I don't really have like any. Uh, thing to hide as a politician. I think owning it is awesome and that's what resonates now. But something that really, I think is really cool about you and I think I we could be similar on is I'm from Florida <laughs> in a smaller town in Florida and people were very much in a box and afraid of what they didn't know. Sure. And moving to New York, it's I am liberal and I do have very open beliefs but also come with the understanding that People just haven't been exposed to a lot. And, you know, we live in a New York bubble. So a lot of my friends who are just so born and raised in New York or very liberal pl places, it's hard for them to see outside and see the more conservative views. And they see often conservatives as dumb and as the other. And I I'm kind of like, you're doing exactly what conservatives are doing to you. And yeah. Do you find that coming from Maryland and coming from the smaller towns kind of gives you that insight? Sure. I think, you know, just as much as we're in a bubble in New York or LA or Chicago, people in the Dakotas and Minnesota and these they're in their own bubble as well. It's just a different bubble than ours, you know? And, and I grew up in a, the county I grew up in, Kent County, Maryland, has, I think, 18,000 people in it. Like, more people live within two blocks than me mm -hmm. than in this entire county, you know? It's rural Trump country, and uh, and that's where I'm from. And so I have that understanding of this is, the mindset is different. And it's exactly what you said. People aren't, ex aren't necessarily exposed to what we're exposed to. And, uh, you know, my in-laws are Mormon and live in the desert and, in Arizona. And, and, 
And so they're, what they're exposed to is not what I'm exposed to, you know? So I think it's about understanding each other and finding that common out, common uh, ground as, you know, American people, you know? And I think that's important to remember. I think a lot of times we get very caught up in, oh, these liberals think this or conservatives think this and they're dumb and this and that and socialist and blah, 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 blah. And we just hear a lot of talking, uh, we just hear like clickbait language instead of like actually having dialogue. And I think it's important to just like break it down and be like, okay, well, why do you believe this? Why did you vote on this issue? Why is that important to you? And find the common ground. Like most Americans are immigrants, you know, I would say the vast majority of us. And, and we came here for, you know, that whether it's my family who came here in the 1600s or somebody who came here a week ago, you know, we came here because America is supposed to be that land of, of opportunity. And so I think when people, I think people in, in smaller parts of the country are scared because job industries are changing, uh, economic um, situations are changing in terms of where jobs are available around the world. And so it's very easy to say, well, Mexicans, it's their fault. It's very easy, but really it's like, you know, coal is not the industry it once was. Steel is not the industry it once was. So now what we have to do as politicians on both sides of the aisle is create green opportunities to employ people. We need to create, our infrastructure is terrible. We need to like, instead of putting $5 billion into a wall, let's put $5 billion into highways. You can employ so many people in, in, in that. And I think it's about finding that, that common ground. We all want every person to succeed. I don't think anybody really wants to lock children in a cage on the border for their belief. And if they do, then they're evil. But I I think the vast majority of conservatives I've interacted with from the middle of this country do not want to see children ripped away from their mothers. It's funny that you say that. I, you know, we, I talk about this all the time. Emily's heard me say this. Um, I was a Fox for very many years and I live in the Upper West Side in New York, which is, you know, like a liberal bastion, right? The the People's (laughs) Republic. Um, I work in a strong voter block. They turn out all the time. Please. We turn out. No, no, definitely. Um, and I work in democratic politics and you would think I would go through my entire day, not ever meeting somebody who's not like-minded based on where I live and where I work. Um, but when I was at Fox all those years, it was nice because I'd be able to spend a good chunk of my day with people who completely disagreed with me (laughs) on ever, I mean, virtually every topic. And, um, when the cameras were off and so you weren't trying to score points and you weren't trying to, um, it up for ratings and you weren't trying to, you know, um, everybody wasn't playing a role. Mm-hmm. What you found was that people still believed what they believed, but they believed it in a much more thoughtful way. And so you could have a conversation, you could have a great conversation with them. And I think to the point that you're making so much of the opposing views of people, um, are, are, are caricatured through cable TV or, or, or talk radio. And so, um, nobody really thinks that the other side is intelligent enough even though they disagree with them because of the fact that they just look at these caricatures that are not really well thought out. Um, or they listen to talk show hosts or cable mm-hmm. news hosts who don't really believe what they're saying to the extent that they're saying them. They're just saying it because it's good for ratings yeah, and that's their job, not, right? It brings right. in viewers, yeah. Sure. So you're right. And I mean, you live in Hell's Kitchen, but you're from, a, as you said, a Trump country. Emily, um, you're from the great state of Florida where I had to go not once but twice over the last month. And I, my condolences to you. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but you're right. I mean, and I'm from New Jersey, which is the People's Republic on the other side of the Hudson. But, um, but it's still, 
you're right that the neighbors that we talk to who are not necessarily like-minded like us are all still thoughtful. They're just not... I think it's about yeah. having conversation. You know, I think what's lost in American politics today is, you know, you have to look at somebody like... Um, take John McCain, for example. I disagree with 99.9% of the things he believed in as a Republican. The difference is... Uh, from John McCain compared to a Mitch McConnell or a Donald Trump, you know, is he was willing to sit down with, you know, his colleagues, you know, he was willing to sit down with Kennedy at the time and, and Biden and, 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 uh, and people and say, okay, well, let's figure out what is the best compromise for everybody, you know, and I, and I think that's what's missing in American politics. It's so divided. I, I, I think bipartisanship is important. You're not going to get anything done. If you just keep pointing fingers, you have to sit down and have a conversation and say, okay, enough is enough. What is the best for the people? Not for the Democrats and not for the Republicans, but what's best for the people, you know? And I think that's what's missing. And I'm from this small town in Maryland. It's like nobody lives there. But, you know, education is key. And I had a great opportunity a couple years ago. Uh, we've now been doing it yearly, but a couple years ago we started this. A, a small community theater there said we want to have you come do like a concert. And so I did, you know, the local newspaper interview and I sent them my headshot and it was my non-drag headshot. The theater called me right away when it came out. Why are you not dragging this picture? Everybody wants to come see drag. And I was like, no, it's this is not going to go. I thought it was going to get shot. I was like, I'm not, I can't do drag there. I'm literally going to get shot by some like redneck or something. But, uh, but what, what happened was, uh, this is why it's important to uh, go to these small towns outside of our New York uh kind of sphere because uh, education is the way to open-mindedness and uh, so I did this show the first one and this grandmother in, in drag in drag and I took a couple Broadway friends of mine down and we did a, it was to raise money for the uh, theater summer camp or whatever and uh, this grandma came up to me the first time and she said I read I read about this and I thought this would be something good for my grandson nobody really understands him nobody nobody understands like he d- doesn't have a lot of friends nobody he doesn't nobody in our family knows how to connect with him I thought this might be something good so I met her grandson he was I don't know maybe like 15 at the time I don't know how old he was uh, he, he was in high school maybe a sophomore junior in high school and he was wearing clothes that were so baggy uh, and you could tell, you know, like when people wear like baggy clothes when they're teenagers because they're uncomfortable in their own skin, right. you know, they're trying to hide who they are. And he like couldn't even make eye contact and he was barely said a word. He was very shy, very closed off. And he just said, it's nice to meet you, whatever. So we did the concert the next year. Same grandmother. So happy you're back. I want you to meet my granddaughter. And I said, oh, okay. You know, I'm like naive. I'm like, great. Granddaughter. Same kid. Wow. What a great story. Happy, eye contact, talkative, joyful wearing beautiful clothes and she said to me she said your concert made me realize that people from here can be who they are and she started her transition and the school was very accepting and because of like stuff like that you know another instance this this kid um wanted to use the i don't know the exact like story but it it goes something like this kid you know was transitioning this another kid and, and they wanted to use the bathroom and the teacher said no you you can't use that bathroom with the kids in a small town like that you grow up with each other you live with each other your whole life, you know? So the kids were like, what are you talking about? Like, just like, and they sued the school board and they won. And so now they have to have like, you know, gender neutral bathrooms available in this small town. But that's what it is. It takes just a little bit of education and a little bit of exposure um, because it will open 
people's minds to people who aren't like them. And I think that's when Republicans can come on board with people who don't look like them because they have to be exposed to them. I think, I think that edu- education is so important. I think that's also kind of a thread in your work, even with your docuseries, The Shade Queens. Mm-hmm. I think also even just teaching people about what drag is and in the struggles that go into it and kind of the path that's paved. It's not like you just get on stage every night in a dress and it's glamorous. It's it's hard work. It's a and, lot. And people come from <laughs> Do you do your own makeup? Uh, yeah, if I have like a photo shoot or something, I'll have somebody do it. Yeah. But I'm doing, I do drag six days a week, so I can't You gotta come over and teach me to do makeup, man. Ever since I left TV, it's been a disaster. Well, I always I always tell women when, they, when they're like, oh my gosh, I want to do makeup like you. I'm like, no, you don't. I have like, it's like pounds of heavy. So it's TV makeup. I used to have that makeup. <laughs> yeah, Emily. TV, TV paint stick. <laughs> it's heavy. It's like, How oh long does it gosh. take you to do? Um, it depends on like what I'm doing. Like generally the entire process from like shaving to makeup to putting on the hips and boobs and the hair and everything, the nails, uh, it's 90 minutes to two hours. So do you feel like you're the same person just, um, in a drag outfit or do you feel like you're a different person once you, do you you feel like you've just transformed into somebody else? Drag gives me an opportunity to kind of like, uh, Yes and no. I think my drag is... I used to be very much like, well, I'm different in drag than I am out of drag. I'm more reserved. But now that I'm in politics, like drag has been a real driving force of like exposure for kind of like the message that I'm getting across. So now it kind of goes... I'm like, okay, it's like... It's me, but with a wig on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Because now it's like very much like, this is how... Okay, drag is like the way to get the attention to get the message across. Um, and so it, it's... I guess it just depends on what event. If I'm, I guess it just depends if I'm doing a show or a political event. You know what's interesting to me, um, based on, on what you did taking on this entrenched um, organization, the Hell's Kitchen, and also you were talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and what she did is I feel like millennials aren't waiting for permission anymore, right? Like my generation, which is Generation X, yeah. you know, kind of dutifully got in line and we had to wait for somebody to clear the way and then you turn mm-hmm. 40 and you're like, okay, that person's 65. Hopefully they'll be moving on now. <laughs> and meanwhile, you guys aren't waiting. You're well, that's like, the thing yeah. with New York politics that frustrates me yeah. so much is it seems kind of like everybody has an air, you know, like so-and-so runs for office, their chief of staff or their, this person or this person is going to just automatically be who right. we know is going to be elected when they retire. Uh, uh, and I don't think that's how it should be. I believe in primaries. I think primaries are important. I think um, if you don't think, even, and I'll say this even like, I, I don't know, like I love, I'll just use this as an example. Like I love Maxine Waters. I think she can do no wrong. Right. I love her. But if you're somebody who lives in her district, and I'm just using this as an example because she's somebody I, I like. I don't want to sound, mm-hmm. you know, go, but, uh, but if you're somebody who lives in her district and you think, you know what? I think I could do a better job and here's why. Run. Yeah. And let the voters decide. I think I don't think it should be. I also am a strong believer in term limits for um, Senate and Congress. See, I totally disagree with you because I think we do have term limits, and they're called voters. But that's the thing. We if, saw we saw that with Crowley's seat, right? Well, yes, but that's a very to me. I think a very rare instance of that happening. You know, I think uh, a lot of these people in con- like. What's his name from Utah? He's like older than dust. Or, or Hatch. Yeah. Well, he's he's done. Yeah. Well, now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But got got, repla- just, got got replaced by Mitt Romney, who, by the way, just got done. A, but yeah. But it's like if his seventeenth trip around. If you're in circles. office for that long, like or that, it, and if not term limits, then maybe like it. Uh, 
I don't know. I mean, Maxine Waters is in her 80s also, so that's not, probably not a great example because I do love her. But um, I don't know. I just think I, I, I think there should be uh, an opportunity for new people to come in. And I think, like you said, like millennials are, are kind of paving that way. I've been told by a lot of people, oh, don't run now because of this or don't run for this office because of this or don't do this because of this. And I'm like, I'm going to make the decision that's best for myself, my family, and what I think is best for the voters. See, I think, I think that's spot on because I remember people were saying about Barack Obama back in 20, 2008, oh, wait, he just got there. He hasn't been there even one term. And who's right. doing, why is he taking on the Clinton organization? Mm -hmm. And why is he running? And everybody said, kind of sit down or shut up to him. Mm -hmm. And he didn't. And, and, he was, and, and he won. Truly the greatest president we've ever had. Like, <laughs> right, so he won. So, I mean, you know, look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whatever you may think about her yeah. um, politics. Whatever you think of her politics, people, take that out of the equation. You have to respect her. Yeah, she's, she, she's 29 years old. She was a bartender a year ago. Yeah. And she said, I don't think this person represents my district anymore. I'm going to try to do something about it. And she won. And she is, did. Which is amazing. She won. And she's the most popular politician in the country now. Like, that's incredible. Insane. Or I, Donald Trump, for that matter, who, you know, everybody was like, well, I mean, there's this is this is the flip side of the same coin, which is you have a guy in charge who doesn't have any experience with anything. But, I mean, to some extent, same thing. Everybody said, this guy's crazy. He's never going to win. Why is he running? And, you know, yeah. with the help of our friends, um, more mosque, <laughs> he, he's now president. So I think if you have somebody like, obviously, I loathe Donald Trump but if you have somebody like that who does not have the political experience somebody like Ocasio who didn't mm -hmm. have the experience and they win what she's doing which is what different from Trump is she's surrounding herself with people who know what they're doing and are going to help her learn about the job and Trump just puts himself with yes people that's different yeah. you know and I think it's important to have um you know, like, for example, so I didn't know shit about politics <laughs> when I started this club, but I made damn sure that I surrounded myself with people who did, who were able to educate me. So when I go to a town hall or a press thing or just a meeting in front of the neighborhood constituents who have questions, I'm not I'm going to know how to answer it because that's my job. If you get involved in politics, whether you have experience in it or not, if you decide to throw yourself into the political arena, you have to gather as much knowledge of both sides of the coin as you can so you can make your case and and that's why I think in New York especially like I encourage people to be on their community boards apply to be on their community boards if you don't get appointed to the community board still go to the meetings because that's like the bot like I, I'm on my community board uh, I, the borough president appointed me toward to it and and I feel like you know everybody's like oh you're in politics because you're fighting Trump and it's like yes of course that's like why initially I got into it but then I went to some meeting the other day where we're, we're arguing, not arguing, but we're listening to arguments over a new bike lane and how it will get rid of a certain amount of parking spots within a 10 block radius and how the people who ride their bikes are for it and the people who drive cars and need parking spots are against it. So that's like what local politics is. Do so you I, like that? or are you? I love of... it because it's 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 day-to-day -day living. And it's, you see it, changes. When when they enact see, something, you yeah. see I don't know, Community daily. boards in New York are incredible incredibly influential in that it's sense. It's incredible, yeah. and I love it. And it's like, so I originally got into politics because I thought, oh, this bigot is our president. What are we going to do? And then I realized there's so much more to it than that. It's day-to-day. -day. Local politics is so important. The, the, the community board, the county committee, the district leader, you know, to like bring it back to what we were talking about before. It's that, that everyday 
living is what's so important. And then it's, you listen to, oh, well, I see the biker's argument. So I see the driver's argument. Okay, what? And then how do you find a solution? And what came out of that meeting was the Department of Transportation and the constituents coming to kind of a consensus to figure out a way to make everybody happy. Uh, and that's what I love about it. You know, Danica Roam, she ran for... Yeah. Uh, in Virginia. Down in Virginia. And so many people were like, oh, you're just running because you're transgendered and, and, and that's all you have going for you. And she's like, no, that's not why I'm running. I she's just, also hyper qualified. She was great. Incredibly yeah. qualified. Yeah. But she was like, I'm running because our, our streets need like fixing. Like, right. <laughs> we need to fix our roads and our traffic lights and like the day to day, like boring. She said, she said, politics is boring. Like, and that's what I love about it. But what's the plan for you? I mean, do you want to do stuff on the national level because of things like Trump and obviously addressing those issues? Are you more uh, into the local scene? Do you, <coughs> do you not have a plan yet? Whatever comes up? I'm, I sure, think I'm sure you have a plan. In terms, <laughs> I think in terms of the national level, I think it's, you know, it's, 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 I'm not there yet. Uh, maybe someday. But well, I think, why not? Ocasio Cortez wasn't in this. Well, I also think doing. you make a lot of change too through your routines and through comedy. Yeah, and, but that's the thing. You know, it's a hard thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, you know, it's that balance of okay, what am I getting done as an activist versus versus as somebody who like makes laws? What are the pros and cons? And that's like where I'm at right now. What are the pros and cons to each? Do I want to run for office? Yeah, absolutely, uh, and that is like in the works um but i think for now for me it's best to stay on like a local level um to continue to learn and grow and then maybe some you know it's a, what, what is it? you know it's like i can't like i said earlier i'm not gonna like map it i have right. the outline of what i think is best i have the out i have like a great team of people around me who are kind of helping me get my you know Right. life together to, to start a campaign. But I think it's like the campaign I want to run for is two years away. So a lot can happen in that time period. Right. Uh, so you're not going to tell us what it is though. <laughs> right. We're, we're not going to get it out of you. I haven't officially announced <laughs> We don't want you to announce yet, here. So. I don't know if that triggers disclosure laws or campaign finance yeah, no, laws. No, no, no. I, 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 I just think, um, I won't announce my candidacy right now, but I, I think it's a very open secret that the city level is something that I'm very Good. interested in. Excellent. What do you think of de Blasio? I am grateful to be an advisor on his pet life council. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I, I think it's, a, and I think it's okay to be an advisor, uh, on, on, on an advisory mayor's council and have disagreements with the boss. I think that's okay. I think, uh, I think some days he does great stuff and other days I'm like, that's not what I would do, but okay. Right. But you you're know. seeing how things get done, what to do and not to do. So you're putting yourself in a very big learning yeah. position. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I was appointed to that council by Corey Johnson, the speaker of the city mm -hmm. council, who's a very dear friend of mine. And, and I, I love him very much. And, and, and so I think it's, you know, I, I think I was appointed to that position as somebody who can see all sides of the coin again and be like, okay, I, I get this. I don't get this. I agree with that. I don't agree with that. And I think if you, it's the same thing. If de Blasio had a bunch of yes people surrounding him, he wouldn't be a good leader. So you have to have people who don't always agree with you. I sat on stage with him during his state of the city address. And there was a lot of stuff that I jumped to my feet and applauded and said, that's my mayor. And then there's other things that were like, okay, well, that needs some work. It's funny. I work, I, you know, having worked with a lot of politicians over the years, most of them say they don't want to be surrounded by yes people. But the reality is most of them want to be surrounded by yes yeah. people. And it's you like, can't be. You, have you can't to, be. You have to have people tell you, 
Because you can think something as a politician or just a person in life. You can think, oh, this is the best idea. This is the best decision. And then it may not be fully thought out or there's things that need to be worked. So if you're just surrounding yourself with yes people, like, yes, this is great, then you can really, especially in politics, kind of fuck a bunch of people Yes. Lives. I love I love taking no people shopping with me because when you look bad in an outfit, I don't want to be yes. I want to yeah. no. You can do better. <laughs> so if I can, I think you need no people in every aspect. Great, to, great yeah. Rudy Giuliani's drag performance back in the day. <laughs> speaking of, speaking of no people, that was the strangest. <laughs> Remember That's that? The strangest clip. It's so weird. He's um. Oh, what a piece of shit. Uh, I, <laughs> yes. I just think he's such a piece of shit. But he's a yes person. There's people out there who are so hungry for power yep. that they will just eat shit. And I just, it's like you sold, uh, Lindsey Graham is one of them. Like you just, what is wrong? Like I just don't I think it. Lindsey Graham made a very strong, I don't think he's being blackmailed by the way everybody thinks he's being blackmailed. I think he made a very easy political calculus that a Democrat can't beat him in South Carolina, but he can lose in a primary. That's exactly right. And Donald Trump, um, who I'm sure and I'm convinced he loathes, um, because I can't imagine that he suddenly had an epiphany that Donald Trump is amazing after criticizing him for all those years during the primaries. Um, But he made a political calculus that Donald Trump needed to be on his side so nobody could primary him from the right. And I guarantee you the minute he gets... Re-elected in 2020, um, if Donald Trump is defeated, he'll trash the hell out of Donald Trump. But that's the same with Kellyanne Conway. She's trashed Donald Trump before. Mick Mick, uh, Mulvaney, he trashed Donald Trump. But they have a a nice job title and a little bit of power, and all of a sudden... Yeah, exactly. um, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just think in politics, you know, I'm not, you know... uh, I'm never going to compromise my integrity to make you like me. Uh, and I think if you don't like what I'm doing, fine. You know, but if I believe that it's the morally right thing, I'm going to do it. I and think also in your profession though, and in, in acting and in drag, you need to have a backbone of steel totally. yeah. in this. Well, people, you know, it's so funny. I always compare them like, okay, what's worse? A room full of drag queens or a room full of politicians? You know, it's <laughs> They're both pretty wild. It's probably really competitive in both places, right? Yeah, I think drag is, you know, people are always like, oh, you're a drag queen, how are you in politics? I think drag has prepared me to be be in politics in in a lot of ways. Um, First of all, if you get up on stage, I can't, there's nothing harder than stand-up comedy. Like There's nothing harder than stand-up comedy at one in the morning with a bunch of drunk people. Yeah. Because they're either going to go really far one way or really far the other. So you have to be able to control that environment. And I think, you know, for me as as a politician, I feel like there's a lot of people... Yeah, I hear murmurs of like, oh, yeah, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. You know, constantly people trying to like tell me, I can't, I can't, I can't. But it's like, you know what? I moved to New York City when I was 17 years old with nothing. Uh, I, you know, built a, a career for myself. I'm an alcoholic drug addict who's been sober for almost eight years. I have built a career for myself, a business, a brand, produced my, I said I want to do a TV show. First TV show I ever pitched, I sold it. That's amazing. And it was on TV. Tell, yeah, tell us about you the show. I mean? the Shape Queens of NYC. It was on Fusion. I I am so proud of it. We were on for a season and we got to tell eight drag queens, you know, life stories. But for me, it's like, like, so everybody who says, oh, you can't, you can't, you can't. Well, I say I can and I will. 
And so people saying, oh, you can't run for office. Well, I can, and I will. And if I don't win, then at least I had an opportunity to let some kid like that uh, grandmother's granddaughter who came to my show know there's somebody like me, there's somebody who represents me, and there's somebody who's going to fight for me, whether they win or lose. And I think right now what politics needs is there's a lot of people who aren't being invited to the table, and so they're making their own tables. People like, you know, we have that entire crop of wonderful, diverse women in Congress now. They weren't being invited to the table. They built their own. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's important. I think on the city level, you know, when, when this next city council, uh, their term limited city council, there won't be, not that that's what I'm running for, but, but just using this as an example, but, um, you know, there'll, there'll be a lot of queer people who are no longer in office. We need queer representation. Um, and, and I believe that, you know, I think, I think that that is a, a, a space I can fill and, uh, so you kind of feel like you're doing it not just for yourself, but you're doing it for, yeah. to set a marker. So even, so if I run for office and I don't win, then I'll keep doing stand up and using my voice in that way for people. But if I do win, then God damn it, I'm going to make sure that every single young queer person knows that every time somebody tries to roll their rights back, there's somebody who's going to be louder and more vocal than they've ever had in office. That's awesome. And by the way, I want to thank you because you are the first guest we've had on the podcast who actually um, asked for coffee as their as their drink. <laughs> I don't drink. No, so no, no. I, I'm really grateful because if, as you can see, we have a shelf here um, for people yeah. who can't see of, of just tons and tons of scotch. And um, as everybody who listens to this podcast knows, I hate scotch more than I hate anything on earth. And, and meanwhile, I'm being forced to chug it every time somebody shows up um, for this podcast. <laughs> So I'm enjoying my cup of coffee. Oh so yeah, thank I you. said, well, this is my time of day, my midday latte. No, I always no, no. have. So. I'm thrilled, thrilled. Although almond, I don't know about almond. I'm, I'm a pure. I'm an almond milk kind of girl. No. I love it. I love it so much. Oh no, I'm oh, a pure gosh. black, black and bitter. That's how I like my oh, coffee. Oh yeah, that's what my my, my husband yeah. likes it like. That. Who's your husband? Tell us about your husband. Oh, he's the best. Uh, his name is Blake Allen. He's a PhD candidate and a musician and a composer, and we're very opposite <laughs> what's he getting his phd in? Um, viola oh and, wow yeah. that's amazing he's very smart he's very talented that's great uh, do you guys collaborate on any songs or anything like yeah, that? yeah we just did a concert at lincoln center together which was super fun he uh, arranged all the music and put the band together and uh and we did a concert in where were it? not maine massachusetts uh and we did a concert in mexico recently together he's a beautiful musical arranger he's really fantastic it's really really beautiful. i did an album that raised money for the ali Fernay center uh and he did all the orchestrations for that uh and arrangements he's very he has like an ear for he can never seem to hear me when i'm trying to talk to him but he has an ear for <laughs> for music that's awesome um tell us did emily tell you about two truths and a lie oh i have to two truths two, two truths, truths and a lie okay you gotta tell it we have to guess I think I think my record is undefeated. By yeah, the way. I've okay. lost. I think I think Emily is so. fully defeated. So, so I just tell you three things, and you have to figure out which ones. Two of them are true, and one is false. Correct. Okay. All right. Number one, um, I started musical theater because I wanted to be Annie because I saw a production of Annie, and I told my mom I wanted to be an orphan, and I got in trouble for that. Uh, I have two. a great. We have so much to talk about with Annie, but keep going. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> um, two. I performed with Angela Lansbury uh, before the Tony Awards in 2009. And three, I uh, had an opportunity to meet Joe Biden when I was in third grade and shake his hand. Oh, God. This is tough. 
I'm going to say... I'm going to say Angela Lansbury's false, even though I hope that's not true. It's false. Oh! I, undefeated. I met her that undefeated. night. I didn't perform with her. <laughs> I'm going to say I was going to choose that, too, because... <laughs> I didn't guess. I was trying to think. I was like, I was like, well, I just said that I performed at Lincoln Center, so maybe they'll believe that I performed at the Angela Lansbury. I something. love it. Okay, so I love it. My husband's obsessed with her, and he's so pissed that I had met Did he I, see the new Mary Poppins? She's in it. We haven't seen it yet because our schedules, we don't want to see it without, because we'll go to movies with friends and talk right. about each other, but this one, we're like, no, we're going to this together, but we've never, ha- our schedules are both so So I got to tell you about Annie. So when I was little, Annie came out, um, the movie Annie came out. The Carol Burnett version. The Carol Burnett version. I did work with Carol Burnett before. That's awesome. And I was upset, like obsessed with this movie. And I would literally lie in bed and I would um, pray to God or whatever, (laughs) Deity, that I would somehow get discovered by a Broadway producer and he was going to make me be Annie. Like, was it I, still on Broadway then? It was on Broadway. And I was obsessed with this movie so much. I remember there was a summer, I forgot the year that it came out, that I literally, I was a latchkey kid, and I would listen to Annie 24-7 it's and so sing good. along to it. It's so good. I, lo- I just loved Annie when I was a kid. There's a great documentary called Life After Tomorrow. You have to watch it. It's, What's it about? It's all the um, girls who played Annie as kids. Wasn't Sarah Jessica Parker one of the original Annies? Yeah. And she was from Ohio, and yep. she had like... Did you know that? She has like 11 yeah. siblings. And she became a famous Annie because she sang with Bob Hope, I think, is what it was. Um, I think it's thing. And then her playing Annie like supported her whole family. I know. I heard that. Yeah. I heard that about um, her. But she's very nice, by the way. Um, but uh, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. I, this documentary, Life After Tomorrow, it, it's, it's wild. But the original, original Annie, who played it in the out-of-town tryout at Goodspeed uh, in Connecticut, is in it. And it's very interesting. It's kind of sad. Like some of the the women grow up to be like very grounded, put together people with like very successful lives. And then the other half are like still chasing that they did one show their entire life and it was when they were like nine years old and they're like still chasing that. And they like went on tour and there's like drugs everywhere. And like, you know, and so that they're like, that was their child. Can you imagine being plucked out of all the girls that tried out for Annie? Especially when you're in it. When you're nine years old and you're it. You kind of get fucked up because then like you have a growth spurt and you're fired. And then your oh, is family, that what would happen? Yeah, and then your family like can't survive, you know. So it's yeah. this documentary is like both beautiful and like extremely sad. Uh, oh, I have to check it out. Oh, it's really Life After Tomorrow. Yeah, I think it might have been nominated for an Oscar. I'm not right. sure. It's really fantastic. Interesting. Life After Tomorrow. You have to watch it. It's a whole it's new perspective. So funny. I love that. You got, I love that you got in trouble for telling your mom you wanted to. Be like, <laughs> yeah, she was like, "What do you mean you want to be?" But you said I saw in some clip your parents come to your shows. Oh yeah, they're wild. That's so uh, awesome. They're great. But they're down in Maryland. They're in Maryland. Right. Um, they were just here for when my Lincoln Center show. They were here, and then they. Uh, I used to do a monthly show in Philly. They would come to um, every month. Uh, were they supportive when you told them you're going to be drag queen? My, my parents are very. They're very like okay. What what? As long as you're happy. And you're healthy, and you're not hurting yourself or another human being. Do what great you want. They're very, awesome. very supportive. I think, you know, I think when I first started drag, they might not have understood it, but they supported it. Right. And now, you know, I'm, all I fucking talk about is drag and politics. So they sure. they have a better understanding now. You know, almost ten years of drag queen. I think they're like, oh, whatever. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, what's the plan with the drag queen um, actor going to keep? keep doing it i mean it depends on what happens politically right. you know i'll always have drag in me right uh i think if i if i get elected to office then i can pull it out for fundraisers and charity events and 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 then when i decide to not be a public servant anymore go back to it but that's that's all again like listening to the universe's cues you know i can make that plan but i don't know what's going to happen 
Uh, and so I have to, to follow the signals. I'm a big believer in just following the signals that are presented to you. You know, a lot of times I think, uh, I think, I think the universe is kind of like a cliche broad statement, but I, I think, I think the universe presents you, um, with signals and you have to, you have to, you either pick them up and, and take that or you like defy it and go the other way. And so I'm just going to listen out. And if, if I'm supposed to be doing drag when I'm in office, great. If not, then no, we'll that's see. That's awesome. I think, and that's cause you keep kicking ass on every single thing that you pivot to and from. So I, we look forward to seeing yeah. where you go and I love drag. And fully I love supportive. Politics, yeah. I know. So we, we do too. Exactly. So, so awesome. maybe yeah. I, people always say that like, well, you campaign and drag and I'm like, well, if it's, Why not? A, if it's an LGBT event, why not? Why not? Why not? Yeah. Why not? I'm not going to go to everything in drag, yeah. you know, but if, if it's a queer event, you know. I mean, know your audience, right? What? Exactly. And I think I, I, this is very funny. I love this story. I was doing an event for uh, the HK Dems and Jerry Nadler was our guest speaker. And I had my face and makeup on because uh, I had a show after and I, you know, I was very nervous and excited to have Jerry there. I think it was my first time uh, interacting with him. And since then I've you know, seen right. a bazillion times. But, uh, you know, I got up there and I was in drag and it's congressmen and there's a bunch of state senators and assembly people. There was a lot of political people at this event. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm in drag. This is like embarrassing. This is going to be weird. And so I got up and I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited to be the first drag queen to ever introduce Congressman Jerry Nadler. Welcome, Congressman Nadler. And he gets up on stage and without missing a beat, he goes, I hate to burst your bubble, but I've been a congressperson for 25 years in New York City. You're not the first drag queen to introduce sure. me and you won't be the last. <laughs> I'm sure. And it made me laugh because I thought, oh, you're right. You know, he's probably done a bazillion pride events yeah. or whatever. Uh, but it just made me laugh because I felt so uncomfortable being at this political event in drag and him kind of uh, breaking that ice for me. Let it be. I was like, okay. I got to tell you, because um, we have to end this, but um, you, we started this by talking about Stonewall and I was down there today um, in that area and I didn't realize that they had built a national registry and that park is beautiful. It's a national, Obama did that. It's a national park. It's a national yeah. park. It's, uh, I the, actually walked through it. It's, it's a beautiful it's statue. A monument. Yeah. The building is part of the monument. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's beautiful. I think, I think, um, I think it's a great way for people who lived it to have a place to reminisce. And I think it's a great place for people who don't know what it is to learn about it and, and young people to get educated about their history. I think, I think, you know, in any sort of civil rights movement, it's very easy, um, it's very easy to forget where we came from and what happened. And I think it's very easy uh, for queer people, young queer people who are living with basically total equality under the law for the most part. Now there's things being rolled back by, by Trump, obviously, which we're fighting. But, you know, for eight years under Obama, we had a lot of forward progress. So it's easy to forget the fight that came before and that's continuing. And so I love that they have the Stonewall Monument and the AIDS Memorial is a couple blocks away. And I, I think it's a great, um, a great, I, it's about time America had that, you know, in Amsterdam, they have a, a beautiful outside of the Anne Frank house, which was like, again, you know, we can't forget history. It's so important to have those places, but out, outside of the Anne Frank house, there's the a uh, monument to the queer people persecuted in the Holocaust. And I thought that was such a beautiful thing that the, the, the Dutch government did. I thought that was really beautiful that they honored those people. And so now for our country to honor um, the people who fought um, 
you know, police brutality in 1969. I think that was a, I think it's really beautiful. Uh, Yeah. And it's amazing because I I was just saying this um, to a a gay friend of mine. We were talking about the fact that how quickly the movement moved, it stalled for millennia. Yeah. And then over the last decade, just the transformation. Well, I think, you know, we lost, uh, you know, Stonewall happened in 1969 and, uh, and it started with Marsha Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, like really kicking shit up. And then that's when Pride, it's 50 years of Pride mm-hmm. this year, yep. which is major. And then in the eighties and the nineties, we had this moment in, in our culture as queer people where an entire generation was basically wiped out. And so I think that's why the movement kind of stopped a little bit. You know, I think that's why it took a pause. Because you had, obviously, there's people from that generation who are still alive, but there's thousands of people, thousands of activists and, and political-minded people and artists and, and just people who I think could have really moved the movement forward uh, who were lost to a disease that was ignored by our government. Uh, and it's funny, I was thinking about that too, um, because I was walking by St. Vincent's Hospital. Um, which is now fucking which, condos. Which is condos, and I used to live across the street in a, in a building literally across the street from St. Vincent's. And now they're condos, and I was thinking, um, again, that St. Vincent's was the hospital. The only place. That treated, the only place. Yeah. I, look at, I think about it. I think about the, just the, the bigotry that was not that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. No, it was people, the 80s. People sure. saying, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to... Uh, the, the, p- 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 uh, putting bodies in trash bags and leaving them on the loading dock. That's look, because it was like the plague. Like you yeah, couldn't touch somebody with but AIDS. But it's like not that long ago. And I remember, you know, my mom is an amazing person. I she's so beautiful. I I remember when I when I uh, was growing up, my mom always said, um, you know, oh, you remind me so much of of I think his name was Peter. I can't remember. Uh, we'll say his name is Peter. I can't remember. She's like, oh, you remind me so much of my friend Peter. You remind me so much of my friend Peter. You're just like Peter. And then when I came out of the closet, my mom said, you know, she finally told me the whole story of Peter. I didn't know it. I just remember being a little kid and my mom said, oh, you remind me so much of my friend. So my mom was growing up in the 50s. My mom was born in 1951. Uh, small town, very small, you know, farm. She had a friend. And my mom would always play the cowboy and he would always play the damsel in distress, you know? And, uh... And they were best friends their whole life, their whole, whole life. And in the early 90s, I think it was, he had moved to, to I think it was California. I'm not sure. I may be getting some of those little facts incorrect. But, uh, and then he came home. Uh, he got really sick. And no, nobody would help him. Nobody would touch him. But his parents took care of him. And my mom would go and help take care of him. And then he passed away. And, and so when I came out, my mom was like, you know, just, you know, this is the story of my friend. And this is how people treated him in his most desperate time of need. And she said to me, she was like, be, be safe in, in your life. And she said, don't ever treat people the way that he was treated. And so I think that's why my parents are, are proud of me for being a drag queen. And I think that's why they're proud of me for being in politics. Because they know that if things like that come up again, they know that I and the people I surround myself with will make sure that that doesn't happen you know, that's again. An, that's an amazing level of empathy to pass along to your son, especially, yeah. as you said, so well, I, I just remember, like, whenever I would... I remember this one moment. I'm going to get emotional talking about I remember this one moment as a little kid. I came home and I talked to my mom. I was crying. I was crying so bad. I was sitting on the couch. I remember 
uh, in our like little family room and, and I was like I don't have any friends I don't have any friends I, I, I'm like such a loser nobody likes me and my mom said oh you, you just remind me so much of, of Peter you're so much like him uh, and then I felt guilty uh, putting this burden on my mom I knew you know as a little kid I didn't know anything about him but I knew that there was sadness on my mom's part about him and I didn't want to put that so I like made up this lie to my mom I was like oh I'm just kidding I have this Bianca's my friend and Jamie's my friend they weren't my friends they were so mean to me but I didn't want to put this extra burden on my mom and now like as a grown up I'm like wow my mom loved this man so much uh, and I just feel grateful that I'm able to kind of be an extension of that um, being for her you know today and uh and so, like, my drag and my politics is not just for, like, the queer young people, but it's for people that we like, like my mom's friend who she loved, who she doesn't have anymore, you know? It's like we have to, keep, we have to stay loud as drag queens and we have to stay loud as political activists because we can never, ever let that happen again. Well, no, you can't get complacent. I mean, you, you, it's you, very you, easy you mentioned the Anne Frank house, and, and if you've ever gone there, anybody who's ever gone there, oh, it's, 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 it's horrible. But you think, I went to the Anne Frank house, and I did not, you know, you read about it in history. You read in school. And then we're walking through the Anne Frank house, my husband and I. And it's there's, bigger than I thought, by the way. It, yes. Well, I think that's because like, the museum right. is around. But, but we're, in the, we're in there, and in her and her sister's room, there's pictures of movie stars and a picture of Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret when they were kids. They're seeing it, and you think... And Frank today would could potentially still be alive. Oh no, she probably I think she'd be in her eighties or so. Yeah, nineties maybe. She yeah. she she like any teenage girl loved Queen Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, who's still on the throne. Well, I don't think she was on the she throne then. She was on the throne then. you know, she wasn't on the throne then. But she 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 was a princess and somebody that, that this girl. I think they're contemporaries. Then, I mean, they're probably within a five age. Yeah. Year, age yeah, and so then I think that's not that long ago. But no. how quickly, how quickly we forget, how quickly we're, we're able to say, you, kind of, I certainly don't accept Nazis, but there's people who are now like, oh, that's not a big deal. These kids in their high school all doing the salute in their picture, it's not a big deal. They're just kids being kids. Well, kids being kids led to adults other, being adults. Yeah. Right. Who right. then persecuted people. Um, I'm conscious of your time. No, so, you. Yeah. I have enough words. Right to no, no. Um, it was so wonderful to have you on. This is like, Thank you for what a, you're me. amazing. Thank amazing. you guys for having me. We cannot be more grateful to you for coming. We can't <coughs> wait. Me. I think speak for both of us. We can't wait to see what you do next. You've got to come back. Stay tuned. Yeah, You've got to come back after you do your announcement and actually talk to us about it again. Um, super excited. Thank Thanks. you so much for Thank coming on. Thank you guys on. so you're much. Right. I appreciate it. All right. Thank Bye, you. Marty. Take care. Thanks. Julie, what an interview we just had. I think if Marty didn't have an event after, I think he's getting ready for the Glam Awards. If he didn't have that, we would have continued to talk to him probably I, I, right now. <laughs> I have another three hours worth of questions for him. Um, I thought he was great and real and empathetic and amazing. And um, I think he's got a, an incredible future in whatever he chooses to do. Um, sounds to me like he's going to be running for something soon um but uh regardless it sounds like whatever he chooses to do whether it's politics or drag or write write the great american novel um he's kind of fearless i mean when i was 31 i had everything planned out in life because i was too afraid to take risks but this guy's like the ultimate risk taker he just goes with the flow it's incredible it is and he stands up for people who can't stand up for themselves or haven't found their voice yet which i think is great and i think he owns he just owns it. He owns what he does. He owns his, his life, and it's super inspiring. Yeah, I agree. Um, what's making you salty this week? 
Uh, a lot that the government still shut down. That's, that's pretty much making me extremely salty because a lot of people are losing money and having to take from their child's college fund to pay for their rent and to pay for food. And also the idea that Trump is saving for border security about the wall and we're not getting people at the TSA working. Yeah, by the way. 9-11 happened because of the plane. So if he's really worried about terrorists, he should, he should maybe fund the TSA. Yeah, I, I was I was flying out of um I, I told you I went to Miami uh, last week and I was flying out of LaGuardia um, and I asked one of the TSA guys I said I, I know you guys aren't getting paid um, thanks for showing up to work <laughs> basically volunteering your time to keep the rest of us safe and um, I wish the president would acknowledge at least the work that they're doing to keep us safe considering that they are now living a lot of these people are living paycheck to paycheck without a paycheck um, you know what's making me salty. My party of Reagan friends, um, we had an explosive one-two punch story. One was in the New York Times uh, last week, late last week, about the fact that Donald Trump uh, was investigated by the feds for potentially being uh, a Russian asset, which is just amazing. Um, that we're talking about the president of the United States, but um, could I say we call you called it on clapback? Thank you. I called it on clapback like years ago because I, you know, I. I see them from a mile away. But secondly, um, even more troubling to me, because we actually don't know if he's a Russian, I don't think he's a Russian asset. I think he's an unwitting, you know, he's like a, what the Russians would call a useful idiot. And don't tweet me that I call him an idiot. That's not what I mean. It's an expression. Um, but, uh, but the other story that I thought was just amazing is that he basically ripped up notes, refused to have any notes taken at any meeting of his with Vladimir Putin and including telling the translator um, not to discuss it with anybody. So we actually don't know what was said. I mean, that's completely unprecedented to have a meeting with an adversary um, and nobody, nobody, not anybody in his inner circle knows what was said. I think Rex Tillerson was at one meeting, but the Helsinki one, it was just the interpreter. And, and that's amazing too. And um, so, so which point of the, to, to, I don't know, Lindsey Graham, we just talked about Lindsey Graham on the show, for example, these, these hawks, this party of Reagan, um, hawk machine, when do they speak up? When do they say something here is not right and maybe we should stop being Republicans and start being Americans and actually question what the hell is going do you, on? Do you, Schiff hinted at a subpoena. Do you think he will? Subpoena who, the president? Uh-huh, in, um, in the transcripts. I think so. I mean, I, I know that a lot of people are talking about getting the subpoenas. Yeah, I, I think they have a legal fight on their hands. Um, I think they, I certainly think they should subpoena her because um, her name is Marina Gross, the translator. Um, because here's what we know. We know that any intelligence that our intelligence um, agencies have in this meeting, they're trying to get from eavesdropping on the Russians. How crazy is that, that our own intelligence agencies need to find out what's going on with our own president by eavesdropping on our enemies because our own president doesn't want to tell them. It's just, it's amazing to me. And, and look, I've said this before, I've said, I'll say it again. Putin is, was, and always will be once a KGB agent, always a KGB agent. Those guys are incredibly good at manipulation. Certainly it's part of their job description. They're incredibly good at psychological warfare and manipulation um, of their target. And that's before we even get to what they possibly can have on Donald Trump. I personally think it is begins at least with the fact that, as, as Donald Trump Jr. said, a, a large cross-section of their assets are 
Russian and that they don't need to borrow money from American banks because they can get what they need from the Russians. That was the Trump boys saying that. So um, how much more do we need to know before people start getting really concerned on the Republican side? That's what's making me salty, I guess, Republicans. Get with it. Stop making excuses for it. If right. this were Barack Obama, I promise you, and those of you who watch me on Fox knew that I was critical about um, Obama's attitude towards Russia. So it's not, I'm not being partisan on this. Well, we're Wake up, Republicans. Like, start being Americans. Right. Stop being partisans. It's not just about the next election. We're salty about this, but I am thankful for this podcast to hear what else comes and how we are going to react to it, Julie. That's true. All right. See you soon.